Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. What does Plato have to do with the Christian faith? Well, more than you might realize, in ways that might surprise you, Christians throughout the history of the Church, and even today, have inherited aspects of uh, the ancient Greek philosophy of Plato, who uh, learned from Socrates himself and went on to teach uh, Aristotle. My guest, Dr. Louis Marcos, is the author of many books, including From Plato to Christ, How Platonic Thought Shaped the Christian Faith. We talked to uh, Lewis just, uh, well, two weeks ago on his book, Atheism on Trial, Refuting the Modern Arguments Against God. Lewis is a professor of English, a scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University, and has delivered hundreds of lectures worldwide on topics dealing with apologetics, uh, with the thought and writing of C.S. Lewis, and also Dante. Lou, good to have you back. Hey, thanks for having me back on. I'm ready to talk Plato. Always ready to talk Plato. <laughs> well, let's and let's and, and I'll tell you why it's important. Right off. Yeah, the I was just going to ask Al. you. Go ahead. I mean, because because you know, Al, that for the last hundred years or two hundred years, whenever you have a liberal theologian that wants to get rid of something in the Bible that they don't like, they're yes. always their ploy is the same. Oh, that's Saint Paul, right? Right. I only right. listen to the words in red. Of course, they forget that Paul talks all about grace, and Jesus is the one who talks about devils and hell and damnation. But we won't <laughs> talk about that now. But the reason why this is important now is I've noticed that these days a lot of people who would call themselves conservative, traditional, Bible-believing, they can't get away blaming Paul, right. they want to blame Plato. That's right. right. You're exactly right. <laughs> yeah, we, we need to explain what's good about Plato, and obviously there are problems. He, he's a pagan writer. He doesn't right. have access to special revelation. But there is great truth, and God, I believe, as the early church did, used him to prepare the ancient pagan world for the coming of Christ and the coming of the special revelation of the New Testament. Give us a sketch of his biography, would you? Okay. Now, it was his teacher, Socrates, who lived and died in what we call the Golden Age of Athens, the 5th century B.C. But his star pupil was Plato. And what I argue in the book, Al, because a lot of people have different theories about how can you tell what's Socrates and how can you tell what's Plato, right? Because Mm -hmm. Socrates didn't write anything down, oddly enough, like Jesus. It was Plato who wrote down his teachings. And is there a distinction? Well, I think there is, because when you read what we call the early dialogues of Plato, I think that those are heavily Socratic. And those early dialogues, Al, they're interesting. But I believe that if that's all we had, we wouldn't consider Plato the greatest of all philosophers, because in those early dialogues, which I believe are purely Socratic, we have this great Socratic dialogue that tries really hard to do away with false definitions. Because if we want to know what truth is with a capital T, we need to start by getting rid of all those little t truths that block our vision of the transcendent absolute truth. But the early dialogues of Plato, like the Hippias and whatnot, they almost always end with an impasse. We've now discovered what courage and beauty are not, but they tend to end there. Hmm. But as we move into what we call the middle dialogues, those are the great dialogues, the, the Phaedrus, the Phaedo, the Republic, the, the Gorgias, all of these le- leading up to the Timaeus. These are the fully mature Plato, and there we move beyond merely wiping away the false theories to start looking at what goodness, truth, and beauty, and justice actually are. And so I really believe that Socrates 
did the first step of sort of preparing the field and doing away with the false notions so that Plato could come along and move towards actual definitions and up the sort of metaphysical ante of what's going on. So, And then, of course, Plato himself, who straddles the golden age of the 5th century and the 4th century, his great pupil was Aristotle, who is actually purely a 4th century figure. He's outside of the golden age. Uh, and we don't have time to go into it, but, but let's just say Aristotle is not as different from Plato as everybody likes to say. It is true that, yeah, he brings things a little bit down more to earth, but mm-hmm. he still believes in absolutes. Whereas Plato put the absolute up in the heavens, up there, all that Aristotle did is put it inside. So every creature has a telos, a purposeful end. So Aristotle is not doing away with metaphysics that people would like to think. He's still following his pupil, but he still is a little more pragmatic, if you will, and brings things down to earth. But there would be no Aristotle without Plato. Ah. And what is it in Plato's teaching that uh, Christians should celebrate? Okay, first of all, you know, any Christian worth his salt, one of them that really, whatever denomination you are, if you really believe in Christ, you believe in the Christian worldview, you've noticed we always like to use the word the good, the true, and the beautiful, the three transcendentals. Well, those go directly back to Plato. And do you know what else goes back to Plato? He's the one that coined the phrase, the beatific vision, which great theologians from Aquinas all the way up to Hans Urs von Balthasar were seeking the beatific vision, which means the blessed vision. Now, of course, Al, for Plato, what, what he lacked was a knowledge of the incarnate Christ and of a really a personal God. So the beatific vision in Plato is going up the ladder of ascent to contemplate the forms, but they're ultimately impersonal. But of course, in the truly Christian beatific vision, especially in Aquinas, we are now moving beyond to contemplate the personal triune God. Mm -hmm. So it is moving beyond Plato, but we've learned to move in the right direction from Plato. We're ascending the ladder, we're exiting the cave and moving towards the truth, that which is truly true and really real. And I think the most important thing Plato gave us, my my original subtitle was From Plato to Christ, Ascending the Rising Path. And I just ended up naming one of the chapters that instead. But it's about ascending the rising path. And the other thing linked to that that I think Plato was absolutely key to, well, two more things. One is that, okay, it's not that our world is unreal, but compared to heaven, it's a shadow, right? I mean, C.S. Lewis himself calls it the Shadowlands. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's also showing us that the heavenly things are even more real than the earthly things. And he gives us that understanding that in our soul, there is a continual wrestling. You know, we, we like to think of it as little angel, little devil on the shoulder. But he's already understanding the need for a kind of spiritual growth for the choosing of the light over the dark. And that life is a drama, a spiritual drama. Those are some of the most important things, I think, come out of Plato. Uh, uh, He was, uh, as you say, he is uh, considered the philosopher of philosophers. And I I don't remember who it was, but somebody once said something like, you know, all of philosophy is just a series of footnotes to Plato. Um, what What was he battling? In other words... Yeah. What distinguished and, and, him? And, and I should say that 
the, 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 to fully understand how all of philosophy is a footnote to Plato, we need to understand that what most people have been doing since the Enlightenment is not philosophy, okay? If a yeah. philosopher is a lover of wisdom who seeks the ideal, I mean, oh, as far as I'm concerned, an atheist philosopher is an oxymoron. I mean, if you're an atheist, <laughs> what the heck are you seeking? There's nothing beyond this world, right? So I, I think it's a misnomer. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I suppose you can have some deistic philosophers who are seeking after the ideal, uh, but that tends to break down after a while. Uh -huh. But, you know, Plato, I think the best way to say this, Al, is now there are what we call pre-Socratic philosophers, but Plato, in a sense, coming out of Socrates, invents philosophy by welding or marrying together metaphysics and ethics. You see how it, it is metaphysics. There needs to be a standard or a form. Otherwise, we can't have any definitions. Nothing is fixed. But it's not simply a totally abstract pursuit. Mm -hmm. It is linked to real-day ethics and real-day choices. And, and maybe we can say that maybe in Plato, the metaphysics is a little bit stronger than the ethics. And in Aristotle, the ethics is a little bit stronger than metaphysics. But in both philosophers, both dimensions are there. And if we sacrifice either dimension, you know, we, we either end up with, you know, something that, that's so abstract that it's no use, uh, earthly good, or we end up with something that is just completely pragmatic and utilitarian and has lost its connection mm -hmm. with the ideal. So Plato's doing that. And as I, as I suggested earlier, everything begins with definitions. Until we understand what truth or courage are, it's really out of Plato's Republic, we get what we call the four classical virtues, courage or fortitude, uh, self-control or temperance, wisdom or prudence, and justice. And that's echoed in the Nicomachean Ethics of Aristotle. And, and of course, Plato also tries to understand what justice is. And I'll tell you, if there's one thing we need from Plato today, it is an understanding of what justice is. Al, justice is not the same thing as fairness, okay? Right. Fairness is a concern of adolescent children and certain politicians I won't name, okay? Fairness <laughs> means treating everybody the same. That's not justice. That's not justice in the Republic. Justice, you, you can't separate justice from an idea of hierarchy, right? Justice is not treating everyone the same. It's treating everyone as they should be treated. You should not be treating a grandfather and a five-year-old the same way. Right. Right. You also right. shouldn't be treating men and women the same, right? That doesn't mean one gets more dignity. I'll tell you, this is why we need Plato. When we were kids, Al, you would call a man a sexist if he treated men and women exactly the same. That is what a sexist should be. Someone who has no regard or, or, or you know, sensitivity to the difference between masculine and feminine. And, and yet today... You're called the sexist if you don't treat men and women exactly the same. So <laughs> there's a true. complete breakdown in understanding of humanity. And, and and this is why, you know, I don't know if you, I think you've got a Renaissance Festival up there. Why sure. do all these people rush to the Renaissance Festival? I don't know if you've ever gone and looked around you, Al, but I most have. of the people that go to Renaissance festivals would disagree with every single thing the Middle Ages stands for. <laughs> and yet they're there. Yeah. I think they're there, whether they realize it or not, they're there because they're hungry for beauty and hierarchy and a sense of knowing who you are. <laughs> this is why they keep reading Tolkien. These crazy people, you've probably heard about this infamous uh, Tolkien conference that happened a few weeks ago, where every uh, uh, speech was about wokeness and transgender and one thing after on and on and on and on, and yet they still love Tolkien. 
think they, they know more than they know. Let's put it that way. Wow. Okay? They, I think they understand, and, and that's what we get in Plato. We get uh, a, an understanding of distinction that is good. I mean, basically the way justice works is as long as the philosopher kings are employing wisdom and leading and the auxiliaries, that is, the soldiers are embodying courage, and as long as the craftsmen are listening to the wise and courageous and therefore exercising self-control, when everybody does that, that's where justice, that's what the, 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 the Republic is about. That's where justice comes in. Lou, hold it there. We'll continue on with Dr. Louis Marcos looking at Plato and his influence on Christianity. Uh, the good, the true, the beautiful, the beatific vision, uh, the pursuit of heavenly things, the soul continuing to wrestle in moral choices, the four cardinal virtues, all go back to Plato. I'm Al Cresta. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Louis Marcos, the author of many books, including From Plato to Christ, How Platonic Thought Shaped the Christian Faith. And last uh, segment, we were talking about uh, many of the different phrases and concepts that have been incorporated into Christian thinking uh, that really can be traced back to Plato. And, Lewis, I wanted you to now give us an idea of why uh, of why Plato was so important to uh, St. Augustine. I tell you, it's, it's, it's fascinating, and we need to understand that although there are some people that go sort of directly from unbelief to a belief in Christ— that's often the case. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people like C.S. Lewis and Augustine whose yep. journey was much more complicated. And if you read the Confessions, we see that Augustine went on a many-step process of conversion, ascending that rising ladder. And he was a Manichae for a while. That was a crazy Gnostic sect. But he was also a Neoplatonist. And that was before he became a full-believing Christian. And what's interesting is that the Plato he read and the Neoplatonism he read was not something that 100% led him astray. It gave him some truth, though not the complete truth, but it was an important step along the way. And this is how Augustine himself explains. I think it's Book 7 or Book 8. I think it's Book 7. He explains that from the Neoplatonists, going back to Plato, he learned that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He understood a concept of the Logos, right? And, you know, when we read Plato in our translations, sometimes they capitalize God with a G, sometimes it's small. Plato is not giving us out-and-out monotheism. He doesn't have the special revelation God gave to the Jews. But it is clear that Plato is understanding that if the only gods you have are the gods of Homer, right? It doesn't do any good. They're, they're imperfect. They're not really eternal. They're immortal, but they have a beginning, right? They're not a standard for any kind of goodness, truth, or beauty. And so he's moving towards an understanding of there has got to be a divine mind, a logos. Logos means reason and speech and revelation. That's that loaded word. Right? And so from Plato, he understood that there must be something outside, But only in the Bible, only in the Gospel of John did he read, and the Word became flesh and Ah. dwelt among us, right? Mm -hmm. Now, when he accepted Christ, he didn't reject Plato. 
He now had a modified Plato. He understood the obvious limits of Plato, but he didn't turn around and demonize him and say, be gone. Right? It's like, right. no, you prepared the way. You helped me to get there. You helped me to understand much of the truth. And now I've taken the full step. But Plato's there. Plato can prepare the, the way, prepare the ground. Uh, preparatio evangelicum, that was the famous phrase that was used by Eusebius. Uh, mm-hmm. The preparation for the good news, the evangel, preparatio evangelium, uh, that you get, not only in Plato and others. I mean, that's why I've also written a book called The Myth-Made Fact, Reading Greek and Roman Mythology Through Christian Eyes, and a third book called From Achilles to Christ, Why Christians Should Read the Pagan Classic. All of them are trying to do that. Look, now, why do I focus so much on the Greeks and Romans? Okay, Al, let's be honest. That's my tradition. That's your tradition. <laughs> exactly. It's even more mine, because I'm actually Greek. Right? <laughs> and that is not to say, oh, you know, all the other traditions are wrong. I think we can find preparatios all over the world. Mm-hmm. But God chose, for whatever reason, God chose to incarnate himself at the height of the beginning of the Roman Empire, when it was also still very, very Greek. And a koine, the, the common Greek was still the language more than Latin. So you know, that's when God, that's when and where God chose to incarnate himself in the world. And the early theologians, starting with John, had no problem using the word logos. It was a Greek word, very platonic word, like psyche for soul, but they felt like they could use it. They didn't use Zeus, because Zeus was a corrupted concept, but they found some real truth in the basic teaching, and some of the early, real early ones, I mean, the, what we call the anti-Nicene or pre-Nicene fathers, mention often things like the the allegory of the cave, and they, and they talk about logos almost more than anything else, because they know the pagan audience understands that. So, again, Plato is a stepping stone. The fullness of truth is not there, but there is real truth there. And the way I put it, Al, okay, the Bible says we see now dimly in the mirror. Well, maybe Plato saw very dimly in a dirty mirror, but he saw something. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Very good. Um, other uh, major figures uh, in Christian history who were influenced by Plato. Uh, what about the Cappadocian Fathers? They're great. You know, the, the, the Gregory of Nazianzen, uh, Gregory of, of, of Nyssa, and there was mm-hmm. also Basil of Caesarea. In my book, I covered the first two Gregories, and then I jumped a thousand years, and I go to Gregory... Uh, what's the last thing? Thaumaturgus? Uh, uh, no, I'm sorry, Gregory Palamas. Yes, uh, okay, Palamas. This is what's wonderful about the Greek Orthodox tradition that I came at. There's like a thousand years between the two Gregories and the third Gregory, but it might as well have been yesterday. They don't change, <laughs> you know. The Orthodox, they don't even have a Reformation, counter-Reformation. They haven't changed in 1,500 years. I don't think they've washed their vestments or cut their beards in a thousand years either. But, I mean, it's amazing that you, you still have that, that focus, but these early Cappadocian fathers who, who fought for Orthodoxy, I don't have a chapter on Athanasius, but he was also influenced as well. But I see it even more in something like Gregory Nazianzen, where he understands. And there's also, what's so important now is when you read a Gregory, you're not only seeing, you know, the link to logos and things. You're you're seeing something else. Gregory is is, is very uh, specific about if you're going to practice theology, you need to be pure of mind. In other words... There's not just theology as an abstract study. There is theology as a spiritual discipline. And he understands that Plato can not only help us philosophically, 
he can help us because we all need to do what the philosopher does in the famous allegory of the cave, and that is turn away from the shifting shadows of our world and focus our attention on, again, what is truly true and really real. So, so, so you see, Plato is not just a philosopher of philosophers. He's a kind of a role model mm-hmm. for someone who is trying to cleanse his senses of the deceptions of this world so that he can fix it. I always think of that beautiful hymn, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of that glory and grace. I think Plato could have written that, or Gregory of Nazianzus, or, or Augustine. This, this is what it's... So it's, it's, it's not just a philosophy, it's an orientation of our life in which we're trying to move out of the shadows into the light. We're not talking about works religion here. We're talking about love, right? Philosopher, lover of wisdom, or friend of wisdom. You think of the, the Proverbs where Solomon speaks of wisdom as a beautiful woman that we are pursuing. This is, this is what it's about. It, it, it's serious business, Al. And, and it's, it's a love affair. It's not this dry thing it's become. It's not this, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, an arrogance. I'm smarter than you. I look down right, than you. Right. It's not about, it's certainly not about mathematical symbols all over the place. Don't, don't even get me started. That's why I love Peter Kreeft. Peter yes. Kreeft and Al Cresta, my two favorite <laughs> Catholic converts, along with Joseph Pierce, my third. Um, but, you know, P- Peter's like that. Peter Kreeft, you know, you notice he avoids you know, it is, why can't A just be A, right? You know, the old joke about what's happened to, you know, academic philosophy. Uh, I just did a review for Star of his new book on, on the Psalms, Peter Craig. Yeah. And it's like, let's go to the heart of this. Let's pursue philosophy as love. Yeah. And you see, yeah. Plato teaches that, that as well. That's right. And, and, and it's being picked up by these, you know, early church fathers, who see truth in him, and and by the way, they also, I don't focus as much on this, but they looked at Socrates as a role model, as a martyr for truth. Yeah, and that that's comes right. out very strongly. I've, I've got a new book coming on the early church, probably sometime the next year, where I focus more on that. But oh. again, they, they look to them as role models. This, there's a loss. When people think of philosophy today, they don't think of the pursuit of truth or the search for wisdom, that there's a, a path that requires a certain discipline. Uh, it seems to be purely an intellectual uh, discipline now. Um, and this vision of philosophy that you're uh, pointing out goes back to Plato. It, it's, it's in the life of St. Augustine, um, and it remains uh, available to us today. You also mentioned C.S. Lewis, who oh had, my this, gosh. He was, had this vision. He was a, yeah, he was a Christian Platonist yeah. in so many ways. His, his vision in The Last Battle, that's the end of the Chronicles of Narnia series, uh, as they look and they realize that they, they, they're like, Wait a minute, Aslan told us we'd never see Narnia again, but this is Narnia. No, this is the perfected Narnia. This is the heavenly Narnia in Aslan's country, of which that Narnia was only an imitation. Right? Mm-hmm. And there's a great moment where the, um, the professor says, it's, it's all in Plato, it's all in Plato, what do they teach these children these days? I mean, he makes the connection exact, right? And see, uh, another thing that we can kind of tie in here, something unique about Plato, all right, and, and I kind of separate this out in my book. I've, I've got chapters on the Republic, and I, you know, I look very much at his, what I do want to call it, his logical philosophy, his dialectic, his debate. But mm-hmm. I've got two full chapters on the Platonic myths. 
And the yeah. amazing thing about Plato is he makes all these arguments and all that and definitions, and then suddenly he loses himself in myth. You're, you're a fan of Joseph Pieper, I'm sure, Al. Sure, yes. Yeah, he, yes. he's written some stuff on Plato and Platonic myth. He writes these wonderful little books, uh, and, and he writes as well on that. This, this is something unique. So that, and this is something that certainly appealed to C.S. Lewis, who, wh- why is Lewis the greatest apologist? Because he brought together reason and imagination. Exactly. And although, even though Plato infamously kicked the poets out of his republic, he also brings together reason and imagination in a powerful and life-changing way. And again, <laughs> everybody knows the allegory of the cave, but I, almost all of his middle dialogues have some kind of myth, and it's either about the origins or about the endings. It's about judgment. It's about choice. It's about life as a preparation for death. I mean, all, all of it's there. And so Plato speaks to the mind, but he speaks to the heart and the imagination, just like C.S. Lewis does. Only Lewis could write mere Christianity with its logical apologetics right. and then basically uh, incarnate a lot of those ideas in the Chronicles of Narnia, or his yeah. science fiction trilogy, it's the science fiction Amazing trilogy, his sure. ability to do that. Yeah, no, it's 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 lost. This is largely lost uh, in in modern academic life. It seems to me, and you know that better than I do. Uh, but I, I, it's as though the whole concept of wisdom as something that can be attained has been lost, and that. Modern you academic philosophy is, doesn't believe... This is what I love about Plato, okay? There is a lot of fun in Plato. There's a lot of wit, okay? But it's not cynical. Right. The right. modern academia has given itself over to cynicism, right? Yeah. And, right? And it's come to think that cynicism is synonymous with wisdom. <laughs> that if you're a true Ph.D., you're going to be cynical and skeptical about everything. Now, right. let's understand, Al, that yeah. true Platonism, Socratic Platonism, does begin with, um, with some skepticism because we need to wipe that board clean and understand that a lot of what we call truth is just small t truth. So it does begin with sure. even a little bit of what you might call deconstruction, but it yes. never ends there. No. It starts there and it builds. It, 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 it's not to debunk as an end in itself, which is what has happened today, or to make me feel smarter than everybody else. (laughs) Well, we owe Plato a a great debt of gratitude. He's given us some of our best uh, Christian thinkers. And, Lou, great talking with you again. I'm looking forward to uh, having you back on sometime fairly soon to talk about uh, the Greek myths. Okay? So much to talk about. Thanks, Al. Dr. Luis Marcos, from Plato to Christ.